I want you to imagine yourself at UVM orientation. Remember at orientation when you sort of got in your original sort of cohorts and you walked around campus and you saw a bunch of different things and you played some icebreaker games? Remember doing that? I want you to imagine that you're there. And I want you to imagine that sort of this is your cohort. And we're about to play this either or icebreaker game. It's sort of like this get to know you. You say something and, you know, people who identify with one thing, they go over to this side of the room. People who identify with another, they go over there. So, for example, uh, a prompt might be cats versus dogs. The cat lovers what in this room, they walk over there. The dog lovers, they walk over there. Another prompt, right? Beach or mountains? Half the room who loves the beach, they go over here. The other half who loves the mountains, which I'm suspecting is most of you. You're here in Vermont after all, in Florida or some other place. You go over here. Then I think for the sake of this illustration, your orientation leader asks a very weird question. They would never ask this, but again, play along with me. They're like, who, who here is righteous? The righteous people can go over here, the unrighteous people over there. I had to throw in like, maybe the surfers are like, yeah, we're, we're righteous, we'll go over here, but hang on. It's not a normal sort of question, right? Who's righteous? You lean in, you're like, what is this OL talking about? They explain further. Okay, who here is perfectly just? Who always says and does the right thing? Who hates what's evil and delights in what is good? Who amongst you loves God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength? And who loves your neighbor as yourself? If that's you, you're righteous. Go over here. And if it's not, go over here. And what happens is everybody in this room, we all move to this side of the room. And it's not just everybody in this room. Everybody in the world would find themselves on this side of the room. Save one. There's, a, there's like one guy standing over there. His name is Jesus. And this is the picture that we painted last week. And it's the picture I want us to return to as we dive into the passage tonight. Verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Meaning we're all on this side of the room. And this is a problem for you and for me. Because you and I were made in the image of God for the sake of imaging God. To be human is to be the special creature created to reflect God's heart and his character and his goodness to the world around us. It's a beautiful thing to be a human. We were made to radiate his love. But like a lamp disconnected from its source, we've been disconnected from God. And consequently, we don't work right. We're not radiating that love. And you know that this is true. I know you know this is true. You sense that there is just something off inside of you. If you're anything like me, you, you have this feeling too. Something is not right. And it's not just you. It's everything around you. you. You watch the news like I watch the news. Something is wrong. Something is broken. And this is where that feeling comes from. It's a verse 23 reality. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's over here, the one whose image you and I are supposed to bear. 
and you, me, all of us were over here. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that some are perfectly content with this arrangement. There are folks who want nothing to do with God. They wish, frankly, he didn't even exist. As far as they're concerned, like God can stay over there in his righteous corner. We're perfectly content over here, doing whatever we want to do, doing whatever makes us feel good, living life on our own terms. There are folks over here who would rather be lords of their own sort of puny kingdoms than to be a creature in God's creation. There's definitely people over here like that. But there are others on this side of the room who see this separation and it causes them distress. These are persons who know that they're dying of thirst, as it were, and there's a nice cool drink on the other side. And that pains them. There are folks over here who are, in a sense, spiritually starving, and they know over there, there's a lot of good things to eat. There are folks on this side of the room who feel like they're on the outside on like a cold night. And over here is a place of warmth and love and laughter. And this distance pains them to be over here when they want to be over there. So they reckon maybe if I'm a really good person, I can, I can make the move. Maybe if I try harder today, maybe if I try harder this week, I can migrate over to this side. And so they try really, really hard to be really, really good. But they quickly become disheartened Because they know what love is. They know what love requires. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. But their problem isn't a lack of knowledge. It's a lack, there's something wrong with the heart. You can know the right thing and fail to do it. And we all do. And it's it's not just true like once upon a time. It's true like all of the time. Folks over here who are like trying to get over here, they remind me of this picture that I had in my head today of people who are like going to the Grand Canyon and they look across the canyon to the other side and they're like, I want to get over there. So they take a ladder and they get right up to the edge and they try to put the ladder down as if that's going to stand it and the ladder just tumbles into the canyon. They're like, okay, I'm going to try harder. So they go back to their house, they get a ladder, and they, they tie another ladder to it, and they're like, okay, this is going to work. And then two ladders tumble into the king. And then it's three ladders and four. And for all of their ingenuity, for all of their effort, nothing they can do is ever going to bridge this gap and get them to the other side. Everyone trying to get to that other side on their own, by their own moral efforts, by their own strength, is like a person who's just chucking ladders into the Grand Canyon. And eventually, that person's just going to give up hope. What's the point? Why even bother? And it's to those, if, if I'm describing you, this is like, it's to these ones that this message of salvation tonight is really aimed I'm not trying, for those who are like, look, I'm, I wish God didn't even exist. I, I don't know. I, welcome to Wednesday Night Fellowship. But like, I'm really glad that you're here. Like, truly. 
But my suspicion is that most of those folks aren't here tonight. But perhaps there are some in this room who are like, look, I sense this disparity and I wish it were, I wish I was over there. Like this is, this is really, I think, aimed at you. There is hope and you're getting to the other side. But this hope doesn't reside in you. Your ability to go from here over there is not in your ability to build a better ladder, as it were. Your ability to go from over here to over here, it's not in your ability to sort of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just get it right. Your hope is that God is going to find a way. Your hope is that God is able to build that bridge. And when we read, as we do in verses 21 and 22 of this passage, that there is a righteousness available to all those who put their faith and trust in Jesus, what we are being told is that God has, in fact, done something to bridge this gap, to bring us over here to like where God is. And he's done this in such a way that there is nothing that will ever be there's nothing that will ever tear us apart. Like we are there squarely in his in his place in his arms forever. Like that is what is being communicated to you in this passage and I really want to help you all to see that. So how is this possible? How is it that we can go from over here like unrighteous all of sin falls short of the glory of God? How is it that we can find ourselves over here where God is? And with him forever. The first thing I want you to see is that this is possible because it's a gift. It's a gift. It's a grace. It says here, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified by his grace as a gift. In case you missed it the first time. (laughs) It's very clear. Our being able to be with God now and forever is a gift. And that's the first thing I want you to see. Our being right with God, it's not something that you earn. It's not something that you work for. It's not something that you somehow figured out how to do. You are a sinner. You are sin separated from God. And friends, that's your fault. It's my fault too. It's our fault. Together, we deserve condemnation. If God left you over here, on this side of the room, as it were, that would be totally fair. It would be totally just. Like he doesn't owe us anything. Like we have removed ourselves from him. We've rebelled against him. We are, we have, we are over there on, because of what we have done. But God has done something to reconcile you and me and us to himself, to bring us back to his side. And friends, this is all his doing, not yours. Verse 24 says that we are justified by his grace as a gift. Justification is courtroom language. In a courtroom, if someone is justified, they are declared innocent. If someone is justified, the gavel has come down, the verdict is in, this person is okay. This person is declared all right or righteous. But how can this be? How can God declare us on this side of the room righteous when we're not? How can we be all right in his sight? Look at the rest of verse 24. We are justified, which 
you can put in parentheses, we are declared righteous by his grace as a gift, says through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Simply put, Jesus has done something remarkable for you. That's what this is saying. Jesus has done something remarkable for you. He has made it possible for you to be all right in God's sight. He has made or he has removed any and every obstacle standing between you and God so that you can be embraced by him forever. That's what's being communicated here. The main point of these verses that I just read is that Jesus makes you holy, 100% all right. And we come to this conclusion really from two angles, starting in verse 24. Okay, we are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Let me explain what that means. A redeemer is somebody who pays a price to set somebody free. Say it again. A redeemer is somebody who pays a price to set another person free. So that price is typically called a ransom, which is the cost to buy somebody out of slavery or to buy them out of prison or maybe out of a hostage situation. It says we are justified because Jesus is the one who pays the price to set us free through the redemption that we have in Jesus, right? He's our redeemer. Have you ever heard of like the pottery store rule? It's this rule that is, if you break something, you buy it. When I was a kid, um, my mom would sometimes take me into like gift shops. And if it was a very nice gift shop with like lots of expensive jewelry or like artwork or glass or china, she would hold my hand really tight. And she'd point to that pottery store rule sort of hanging by the cash register. If you break it, you buy it. And she would hold my hands because she wants to keep me close because she knows if I touch anything, if I break anything, we are responsible to pay the damages. Right? This is a helpful rule for understanding life in God's world. Because in a sense, everything like the whole world is his very expensive gift shop. It is full of like priceless works of art. And the most like, notable is the person sitting next to you. Like God considers this room is full of priceless works of art. Like you, his image bearers, are worth so much. Like it's hard to even put a, a, a figure on. But everything around us, like it's valuable. He made it. He loves it. It's good. Okay, so I want you to apply this pottery store rule to everyday life. If you break something in this shop, you are responsible for paying damages. This is not good news because we're all like bulls in a china shop. Like it's, it's like, I, I swear I saw this in a movie where like somebody's like in one of those like fancy gift shops and they trip on something and they knock like one shelf over and that shelf goes down and all these things break and then he like stumbles backwards and another thing's like that for me feels like sometimes a picture of what it's like to be me in this world <laughs> or like what it's just like to be a, a human. Like it, we break so many things, sometimes on purpose, sometimes just because we're careless and reckless. You know, we just trip up and we are breaking things. 
We break trust, for example, when we lie and we cheat and steal. We do that all the time. We break trust. We break lives and reputations when we gossip and slander. When we use people and exploit them for our good. We break hearts when we ignore one another's pain. When we look past people or we just treat them as if they didn't exist, that they're lesser than. You get the point. Every single day we're doing damage, whether you realize it or not, by our selfishness and our loveless acts and words that we say. We do a lot of damage, and when you break something, you buy it. You are responsible for paying the price. The full extent of the damage is done, and the debt that is incurred, it's hard to visualize. Like, I've, I started off tonight's talk with this image of, like, somebody coming to a canyon. Like, right, there's God's over here, we're over there, and there's this canyon. But if you've ever been to a canyon, it's hard to see from a distance. You don't really realize that you're near or at a canyon right until you get up to the edge. And you're like, oh, this is a big hole in the ground. So I want you to be able to visualize this depth. Uh, this debt that you have incurred, sort of like the, the, the damages that you've racked up, instead of seeing it as like a hole in the ground, I want you to visualize it as a mountain now. Okay? It's almost the opposite. And what is this mountain made of? It's not made of rock. It's not made of snow. It's made up of garbage. Okay, every time that you sin, every time that you've used that stupid, senseless word, Every time you did that sort of careless, loveless act, you're just throwing a piece of garbage into this relationship. You know, maybe it's a, you know, that 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 thing that you did. It was just like a a Twizzler wrapper. It's 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 flimsy and, and not the big deal. But then maybe you did that like really kind of mean thing to your roommate. It's more like chucking like an an old microwave. Little bits of trash, like sins big and small, they start to accumulate. They add up. Wrapper here, old microwave there. You get the picture, right? In the course of your lifetime, all the careless things that you've said, all the careless things that you've done, right? they start to accumulate and they form this mountain. And now this mountain is standing between you and God. And it's like that canyon. It's huge. You're like, how am I ever going to be able to cross it? How am I ever going to be able to get to the other side of it? As far as God's concerned, he says, you don't have the resources to do that. Right? The list of our sins is so long. The damages that we have done, it is so high. Right, like in, in some ways you can visualize like the, 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 the mountain is so big, you can't pay it back. The most valuable thing that you and I have is our life. And that essentially is what God says this mountain costs you. The wages of sin is death. Romans six twenty-three. Say so you deserve to die. You you deserve to stay over there forever. But I want you now to listen in real close. 
Because while it's true that we have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God, it's saying here again that we are justified as a grace, as a gift, through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is going to pay the price for your sins. He's your redeemer. He's going to pay the price to set you free. He's going to pay you the, the price to bring you over here. You might have broke it, but he is going to buy it. You racked up all of this debt. He's going to pay it down. There is this mountain of sin separating you from God. Jesus saying, I will swallow it up in victory. And you're like, well, how is he going to do that? The answer is on the cross. On the cross, Jesus pays the price for your sins. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. But on the cross, he experiences a death that is reserved for the lowest of the low and the worst of sinners. The punishment that you and I deserve, Jesus pays. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus died for you. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only one who deserved heaven experienced hell on the cross, cosmic separation from the Father, so you don't have to. In so many words, you and I have broken so much in this shop, and Jesus has paid for all of the damages. He pays the price for your sins so that you don't have to. Jesus is our Redeemer. But that's not all that's communicated here. It says Jesus is also your propitiation, verse 25. And this word is a technical term, and it means that Jesus assuages and absorbs the wrath of God. People talk, or people don't like to talk about the wrath of God. They would rather that we talk about the love of God instead. But you cannot have one without the other. If you're going to get a God of love, you're going to get a God who gets angry when his loved ones are threatened. Loved, he's going to get angry when his loved ones are abused and destroyed, right? God gets angry precisely because God is loving. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. The worst thing that God could do in the face of our sin is to shrug. The worst thing that he could do in the face of great evil and suffering is to be like, whatever. Like, meh. It's not that big a deal. It's the worst thing that he could do. It's the worst thing that he could say. If God does not get angry at our sin, it's a sign that he's not good. And it's a sign that he doesn't care. You want a God who gets angry. You just don't want him to be so angry at you or me. I'm with you. I like how Becky Pippert puts it. She says, God's wrath is not his cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer that's eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. He hates the cancer that is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Who wouldn't? I want to run a highlighter over that. God loves, which means that he, because God is love, it means that he hates children being torn from their parents. He doesn't hate the kids. He hates the fact that there are children who are being torn from their parents at the border. He hates that. God hates 
that we tolerate refugees drowning in the Mediterranean as they're seeking to flee, like the latest tyrannical regime. Like, he hates that. He hates sexual assault on this college campus and the ways in which it gets covered up. He hates the way that drugs strip you of your humanity and enslave you in addiction. He hates missiles being aimed at apartment complexes in Ukraine. He hates that on average, 73 million children are killed inside the womb every single year. He hates the killing of innocent black men and women by police. He hates school shootings in systems that deliberately enslave people and keep them in poverty. He hates the way that divorce tears up families and, and gossip destroys friendships and how lying corrodes communities. Right? This list is by no means exhaustive, but I think you get the point. God doesn't hate these things because he's unloving. God hates these things because he is. It makes him angry. And now this is where things get tricky because God loves you, but he hates sin. And our life is full of it. We are sinners. We are not righteous. There is blood on our hands. And once again, this is where Jesus comes into play. Because not only does he pay the price and the penalty for our sins, all the anger that is aimed at our sin. All that hot, holy, righteous anger that God has every right to be like, this bothers me. All of that anger is aimed at Jesus. He put, he like draws like a big bullseye on himself and says, aim it all at me. I will take all of the wrath. I will take all of that anger. Pour it into me. And God does. This is what is meant when we read in verse 25 that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. All the anger that God has at our sinfulness, Jesus takes. He bears the blow. Jesus takes that cup of wrath and he drinks it down deep so that there is no more anger, no more wrath left for you or for me. It is all gone. It is finished. And verse 26 is crucial. The cross, it says, shows us God's righteousness. It shows that he is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In paying the price of our sins, God proves that he is just. He doesn't just wave away our debt with a wand being like, I know you had that sin, but poof, it's gone. He's like, no, damage was done. Somebody's got to pay for it. Jesus does. Jesus pays the price. And because he paid it, we don't have to. Because he paid it, and it would be unjust to make somebody pay the damages twice, there's no more payment left for you and for me. We are regarded now as righteous. God looks at us and says, your debt's been paid. You're forgiven. You are all right in my sight. God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now I'm landing this plane. This salvation is a gift given to all. This salvation is a gift who's given to everybody on this side of the room. But it's only experienced by those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. God could build a bridge from here 
to over here. But you've got to walk across it. God could give you a passport and says, this gives you travel from this country to that country. But you've got to put your name in that passport book. You've got to put your picture, your face in it. How do you do that? How do you do faith? Well, like a present, you receive it. Faith is the empty hands that receives what God's offering you. I think a lot of faith sounds like, thank you, Jesus. I needed that. Thank you. The posture of faith is not one of doing, but of receiving. And it's kind of like breathing. Before you exhale, you need to inhale first. Before you do anything for God, you need to receive everything he's done for you. Get it inside of you. Trying to live the Christian life without receiving first, breathing in this finished work of the cross, is like trying to live your life on one exhale. It's not pretty and it's not possible. So tonight, I invite you to breathe deep the love of God for you and Jesus. I want you to take this message of salvation deep into your lungs, get it deep into your heart. Jesus has paid the price for your sins. He has absorbed God's holy anger so that you can be all right in God's sight. Receive this gift so you can make the move.